Welcome to the Hanukkah special episode of Voice Notes. If you're enjoying, please subscribe and share with a friend. You can also find us on Instagram at voice.notes.podcast. So we're going to kick off this episode with something extra special. It's our first actual voice note. This one's from Devorah. It's about the new Hanukkah song by the Maccabees and the Maccabees. Here we go. I actually played that Maccabee song for my son, my four-year-old, who has been practicing a lot of Maccabee songs in preparation for his um, upcoming Hanukkah show that he's very, very excited about. And uh, he um, insisted to me very seriously, as only four-year-olds can do, um, that the Maccabees, the acapella singing sensation we all know and love, um, are actually the very same people as the Maccabees, the um, guerrilla army from ancient Judea 2,000 years ago. Um, and I tried to gently suggest that those are maybe two different groups of people. And he said, I was mistaken that they're Maccabees and they fought the Greeks. And that is why we celebrate Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah, Maccabees. Hey guys, welcome to Voice Notes. I'm Shira and this is my friend Miriam. Hi everybody. Uh, I sound kind of raspy today, so hopefully it's more the sexy raspy type, although I think (laughs) it's probably not. (laughs) Miriam is a professor of Jewish history in New York City and this is my friend Devorah. Hey everyone, I am Devorah and I work in publishing and I'm really happy to be back here this week. So this week is Hanukkah. It starts on Thursday night. It's eight nights long. And uh, we we made it to Hanukkah. So this week we decided to talk about Hanukkah and um, a few few things that have come up for us since October 7th. And um, one thing that I wanted to mention was I got very emotional last night watching and listening to the Maccabees new Hanukkah song that my kids told me to listen to. And I put it on and I, I put on the YouTube video for it. And I was listening to the song and watching the video. And suddenly I was weeping and listening to the song and it got triggered when I saw. So the music video is like very intense and emotional and it's really beautiful and really heartwarming. But it's a lot. And the the part that got me was Emily's father hugging her. That really, it got me. Just seeing them together and the music. And it's it's a lot of feelings. Oh, there was another part with a couple and their newborn baby. And I just, I don't know. I just, I couldn't handle it. And it's a very resilient song. That's the word that I would use to describe the the feeling of the music. It's upbeat, but it's not hyper happy. It's it's intense and it's beautiful and it's resilient. And I'm going to play a little bit of it for you now and um maybe you'll cry like I did. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
there's a little piece of the song. I really can't listen to it right now without crying. So <laughs> that's where I'm at. Um, I don't know when Hanukkah became the festival of acapella, but there's also another great acapella song that came out by the Y Studs. And this one my kids actually had me listen to before the Maccabees song. This one is a completely different vibe. It is like Hanukkah words to the tune of a Taylor Swift medley. And it's just a delight. So we're presenting it here in the order of weep and then laugh. Uh, you can <laughs> you can decide what order you want to go in, but we'll put both of the songs in the show notes so you guys, you can enjoy and cry and laugh and dance. And uh, here's a little piece of the Y Stead song. Oh, you're on the phone with your puppy. She's upset. She's wondering why you haven't lit your candles yet. Cause she's waited all day long just to see you. Just to see you. So <laughs> that one was obviously very lighthearted and really cute. So enjoy these. Watch the Eras tour for Hanukkah on iTunes or whatever. And uh, <laughs> and let's get back to it. So I aside from that, we found this tweet. Actually, Devorah found this tweet weeks ago. Well, just to jump in, I feel like just to introduce uh, what we we've been thinking and talking about is um, the meaning of Hanukkah, right? Like what is Hanukkah about? Uh, it's about latkes and menorahs and dreidels and all the good stuff. And, and it's, you know, all the stuff we've been doing all our lives. But I think we've been putting a little bit more thought into what it means in the context of the bigger topics that we have been debating over the last few months. Um, and even before that, honestly, I feel like there's been a little bit of a debate over Hanukkah um, and just kind of how the, what the real story of Hanukkah actually is and how it sort of plays into the values and the way we have of seeing the world today. And it's not as neat and comfortable as a, of a fit, uh, I think as many people would like, um, we were just talking before and I said, you know, Hanukkah is framed these days as being love and light. If you go to Target and look at the Hanukkah, you know, goodies <laughs> section and the t-shirts, the ugly Hanukkah sweaters and the, you know, happy Lamaka, it's all love and light. <laughs> but the true story is a lot less love and light and a little bit more blood and gore. It's like a, a little depends on your Judaism. I think like well, that Hanukkah has nothing to do with American consumerism I'm not thinking Target, Love Light, Lamaka, like none of us learned that in Yeshiva Day School. This is Christian hegemony in America taking Hanukkah and making it like distorting it to fit whatever other stuff is well, going on in the season, right? Like that's a good not, point. 
part of it is just good old fashioned American consumerism. But the other part of it is that some of the real messages of Hanukkah, if you look more closely at the story, are a little bit more there's it's it's a little bit more of a story of zealotry than maybe yeah. modern audiences are fully comfortable with, right? A couple of years ago, there was an op-ed in the New York Times talking about like, as an assimilated Jew, I'm not so comfortable with Hanukkah, even though it's the holiday that I can, I can post a link to this, but even though it's the holiday that's sort of best known and most commonly celebrated, it's also the holiday that's least comfortable for the assimilated American Jew, because if I were, if it were me in the times of, of the Maccabees, I would not be on their side, right? They were fighting the assimilated Jews. They were even killing them. Um, it's not like, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic that that's become the holiday that has assimilated itself the most onto the shelves of Target and Home Goods when the Maccabees would have smashed that display on the end cap of Target and said, this is, Hellenistic nonsense, right? It's it's I, it's, a, it's a irony of American culture. That is super ironic. I thought it was just. I mean, I knew growing up, it was definitely about there was a miracle. We really focused on the miracle of the oil and the eight days of the oil burning. In case you didn't know, <laughs> they found one jug of pure oil in. The Holy Temple, which I thought growing up was the temple, like the temple, like Temple Israel, where I went to school. I, there was just there was a holy temple in Jerusalem. So in the temple in Jerusalem, they found a jug of pure Not oil. Not an accident, by the way. Oh, really? That, yeah. That's a thing? And that actually ties into what we'll talk about. I have like notes prepared about what oh, I, I love tie-ins. Um, but yes, when when German Jews wanted to culturally emancipate and prove that they are German, um, the argument was, you know, we are Germans of the Jewish faith, just like there are Germans of the Lutheran faith or the Catholic faith. We're just Germans who happen to be Jewish. And part of that was kind of excising any part of Judaism that had this nationalist, collectivist um, identity. And so that meant changing the names of places of Jewish worship from a synagogue to a temple to say, we don't aspire to a third temple in Jerusalem. Our temples are here in Germany. Oh. And so that is why you thought that. So Orthodox. That's so funny because no one ever said that. I just, I just, that's how I associated it as a kid. And then so when I learned, it then worked when on I, you. <laughs> it totally worked on me. And then when I learned about the base of Mikdash later, I was like, Oh, that's what they were talking about you know, on Hanukkah. And that's I so funny because know. growing up from, um, we were like, kind of like, you don't use the word temple. Like it was kind of seen as like something that they do, they being like the reformed Jews. And oh, it was like, wow. sort of seen, it was like very like taboo to use the word temple. And I never knew why either, but that actually makes so much sense now. That is so funny. So we can talk more about the blood and gore and the love and light and all these things. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to read this tweet now. So Devorah sent this in mid-November. I don't know when it was actually posted on Twitter X, but here's what it says. It's the the Twitter handle is Ellie Unger or Eli Unger. I just realized that Hanukkah is around the corner on a good year. I find the appropriation of this holiday by Zionists to be cringe this year. It's going to be extra cringe with some obnoxious on top, isn't it? Devorah posted this and said, presenting without comment. So now we're going to comment. And I read this and I just thought it was the most absurd thing I'd 
ever seen because the idea of uh, I don't I mean, it's it's hard for me to explain the the mental gymnastics I've tried to do to like make sense of of the absurdity but um and like I guess how crazy it feels to me but in general for me I just I don't understand how you can accuse Jewish people of appropriating a Jewish holiday. Just like end of sentence. I guess that's like the simple level of where I'm at. And then because to me, it's like it's like saying like, oh, I really hate it when Catholics appropriate Christmas. Like, what are you talking about? So I don't know. I, I know people are mad at Zionists, but this particular thing to complain about, I'm I can't really listen, I can't get on board with a lot of things, but I'm having trouble understanding why this. Anyway, let's talk. Well, that's the question, right? It's like, obviously, Hanukkah has been celebrated for a long, long time between when there was a sovereign Jewish state then and then when there's a sovereign Jewish state now. And in between, there were many, many years when Hanukkah was celebrated, having nothing to do with that, right? It was a commemoration of something in the past. It represented something spiritual, and now the question is now in our current era, do we see Hanukkah as being still being the sort of the spiritual thing, the way I growing up Chabad learned about it in very mystical, personal, spiritual terms? Or is it now a celebration of something, a Zionist thing, right? About like Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel. I think that's like a very fair debate. I don't have the answer really. One thing I've been seeing on like the sort of social media war that we're constantly fighting are people who are on like sort of the pro-Israel side being like, well, if you're not Zionist, don't think, don't even think about celebrating Hanukkah, right? Like that's our holiday. If you're an yeah, anti-Zionist, hands off Hanukkah. That's that's not. I don't know. To me. Also, if you're Jewish, you get Hanukkah, just like you get Rosh Hashanah, and you get Yom Kippur, and you get Pesach, Passover, and you get Sukkot and Shavuot and Tisha B'Av, and you get them all. If you're Jewish, you just get them all. That's the deal. And I just like to me the. Oh, I don't know, like equating this like important Jewish holiday with with a political situation that's only present day. Like if you look at the dreidel in Israel, it's Neskadol Hayapo. A great miracle happened here. Here in Israel, a great miracle happened. It's it, I know it's still a P. I know it's still a pay, but it's not. Neskadol Hayah Palestine. It's not a great miracle happened in Palestine. It's not, it's a, a great miracle happened here. I'm saying, okay, yeah, okay, I'll... yes. What was it called at that point is a question I would like to know. What was it called? Judea. Judea. Okay, so Yud would be, you know, there's no J in, there's no J in Judaism, but there is a Yud. <laughs> well, the Judeans didn't say Judea. They said Yehuda. Yehuda. Right. So... Anyway, the pay in Israel now stands for Poe here. All right, Zavora, go for it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so funny you said that because another sort of uh, argument that I'm seeing kind of thrown around online, and I'll play an example, although this particular video um, isn't a super well-known person, but I've been seeing it from other people as well. Um, taking it even farther, saying not only is, ha is Hanukkah not Zionist, but maybe it's the opposite. Let me play this for mm, you guys. I can't wait. Okay. So the tweet says, anti-Zionist Jews, you guys have to give up Hanukkah. I'm sorry. There's just no way to logically square that. And here's the response. So the story of Hanukkah, all right, the story of the Maccabees fighting against the Hellenistic empire of the time. 
it's a story of the little guy fighting against their oppressor, fighting against imperialism, fighting against colonialism. How is that Israel in this situation? Because last time I checked, the 15th most heavily funded military in the world that has major backing from all the Western powers of the world um, has engaged in a campaign of settler colonialist imperialism. They're the Maccabees. Now, look, I'm not saying that Hamas is the Maccabees. I really don't want anyone to take this as being pro-Hamas. But Palestine in general, the Palestinian people, are absolutely the Maccabees in this scenario. Palestinians since 1948 and before 1948, but within the context of Israel, have been asking for freedom from oppression, freedom from imperialism, freedom from colonialism. They're the Maccabees. It's not Israel. So, wow. What do we think, ladies? Oh, Miriam, I'm going to let you go because all right. I'll say it <clears throat> wow. smarter. Are the Palestinians the Maccabees? Go. Well, I think to begin, wow, what a way to take a Jewish holiday and then just say this has nothing to do with like actual real living Jews, you know? Right. Like, no. Um, it, it, and, and it feels a little bit supersessionist to me. Like, oh, just a bit. You're not the the Jews anymore, right? Like, just like, oh, the yeah. Jews aren't the real Jews anymore. The the real Jews are now like the people who follow Jesus and Christianity mm-hmm. have supplanted Judaism. So now, yeah. in this like secular nationalist sense, we're gonna supplant the like actual real living Jews who are descendants of the Maccabees and be like, you are no longer the 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 Maccabees and the Maccabees are now the new Jews who are the Palestinians. It's like I'm honestly astounded. I'm so glad you didn't show this to me before because like <laughs> I'm refraining from using some expletives. <laughs> but wow, what a we thing. We want to keep that. it kid friendly. So that's my like off the cuff response. I just want to say one thing that I felt when I was hearing this and I haven't read People Love Dead Jews but Maybe you guys have. You should. And you okay. should, and everyone listening should as well. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna put it on, on my list. And her um, other novels, they are fabulous. Okay, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but what this made me think of is what I have heard about that book, this idea of Jews are acceptable when they're weak, and mm-hmm. when they're the underdog, then maybe they're okay, even if maybe they win, but better when they're dead, good if they're weak. And the fact that, you know, this guy is saying Israel has the 15th strongest military in the world, that's right. a big problem. And it means that they're not Maccabees anymore. Absolutely. When the first thing, the first reaction I had when I listened to this, which was earlier today, um, was we are not a metaphor. We're people, right? Oh, our yes. Stories, our stories are not some kind of fable or mushal for you to plug into whatever scenario in the world you want to. We're a people with our own history. And the same way it's inappropriate to take the history of some other group of people and plug our scenario into it and be like, we're the Martin Luther King of this situation or whatever, right? Like we were real people and our story doesn't exist, not only to be made into a metaphor for someone else, but to literally be turned against us. And it's like, well, you're too strong, so we don't trust you. Your strength is somehow 
morally suspicious, mm. right? I saw someone once posted, um, they're like, might doesn't make right, but it also doesn't make wrong. Mm. Oh, it's Being so good. Being strong I'm sorry. doesn't mean you're wrong. It, it oh. gives you power to do wrong things more, you know, with more strength if that's what you choose to do. With great but power comes great responsibility. She told me that with great power comes great responsibility. Thank, Thank you, you Spider-Man. Spider yeah. <laughs> Israel does Israel has to be careful to do the right thing. They don't have to apologize for being strong. Oh, also, the Zephyr, that's so man. good. I had that to mean that the myself? Maccabees are no longer the Maccabees. Like the Hashemunaim <laughs> become the ruling dynasty in Israel. Right. Well, that was also right. problematic. If you want to complain about the Maccabees, complain about the thing that was actually problematic, that they decided right. we're going to be the kings now and they weren't supposed to be. That's what, I mean, it's a whole other story. And then the power like, ultimately corrupted and, them, right? Like, yeah, and they, and they do become corrupted. Later generations yeah. are corrupted. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's true. Um, well, I guess that just plays into the whole narrative of, you know, when Jews have power, they're corrupt and <laughs> evil and bad. Or, and that's or, maybe, or maybe, or maybe it's that's going to be taken that. out. Like there's, somebody's going to take my voice and say that and be like, look, she said it too. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just maybe this is more about the fact that these stories are a little bit more complicated than the version that my four-year-old is going to present at his Hanukkah play tomorrow like maybe as adults we can handle just a little, little bit more complexity in our understanding of our you know national origin stories um yeah. and we don't need to go with this like super basic kindergarten version and like yeah it's complicated they were had a, a really you know noble goal and a mission and that involved some terrible things along the way and it ended up there was there was corruption in the later you know there was a lot of chapters with a lot of ups and downs and that's maybe the nature of reality that isn't we don't get to always have a clear cut you know the good guy does only things we love and the bad guy does only things we hate and real life is just a lot more messy than that a hundred percent and i mean when your kids are learning even if your kids are learning you know the blood and gore even if they are learning about the war and how we had this tiny army and we fought the greeks and we won and then, you know, you learn about Yehudis, Yehudit, Judith, and how she went in to the general and she fed him cheese and wine. And then he fell asleep because he was so tired from the cheese and wine and she cut off his head and she came out and it was a big thing of winning the war that she cut off this Greek general's head. Well, I don't know if it says it anywhere, but there are things that I think about that story that I wonder, I think that maybe it wasn't just wine and cheese. And there are there are there are more adult parts of these stories that you know not everyone always talks about anyway all right miriam back to you yeah so i think there are a few things i want to respond to what he's saying the first part is i think it's really interesting that he pulls on this kind of neo-marxian power relations empire kind of interpretation of hanukkah because I, I remember like the first time I was in grad school and I was reading this kind of post-colonial theory stuff. I also was like, oh, wow, Hanukkah is about standing up to the he cultural hegemony. And I get it. I think the story does lend itself to that. I don't think that that therefore means, though, that Zionism is colonialism or that Hanukkah and the Maccabees no longer belong to the Jews. I think, and I think this is something most Jews, even Jews who are a Zionist um, would agree, is that Zionism is a modern movement. It develops in a very specific modern context, and it is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. I think even if someone is Satmar and they have theological problems 
with modern Zionism, because they do, and they are very assertively anti-Zionist, nobody would say that Sotmer is anti-Semitic because their rejection of Zionism is on a theological level. They're not denying the Jews who live there or or Jewish access to these stories and texts. Um, and they're also not saying these kinds of things about Zionism. Their problems with Zionism is because of the nature of what Zionism is. And I think, and I don't want to go into like the details of 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 the different types of Zionist thinkers or any of that. What I, I kind of think often gets lost, either people don't know or they forget or they learn these things and they don't connect the dots is really the historical context in which Zionism emerges as a liberation movement. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, because I think for many people, it feels like Zionism kind of just like pops out of the out after the Holocaust. But I think the reality is it goes back way further than that and was well on its way to becoming a thing before the Holocaust. Maybe the Holocaust sort of changed the world's reception to it or or um, approval, but and just kind of overall World War II just like mixed up the whole landscape. But it, I think people sort of um, underestimate how much it was already a movement that was well underway before that, um, if, you, if you haven't learned about it in depth, which I think many of us have not. I don't want to discuss the specifics of the Zionist movement and the building of the different institutions that later become a state. I want to focus more on the kind of intellectual history of how these ideas began. And really, um, the origins of Zionism, like most modern political movements, begins with the Enlightenment and the legal and political ideas that emerge from the Enlightenment. And a lot of us learn this in high school and intro-level survey classes in college, right? There's uh, immense religious conflict in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants after the the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Um, and there's a civil war in England. The king is executed and beheaded. And this is really, really, these are really fraught times, really troubling times. And you have thinkers like Hobbes and Locke and Montesquieu who begin to think about the nature of the state and what does it mean to have a ruler and what kind and, and what is the nature of the ruler and what obligations does the ruler have, the sovereign have to the people and what do the people gain from the sovereign? And so we develop these ideas of of a contract, a social contract between the people and the state where the sovereign rules and the people gain rights. The people have individual rights. And this is the, the beginning of these ideas of civil liberties and individual rights and individual liberties all emerge from the Enlightenment by these thinkers. And ideas have power, right? These are people thinking and writing and ideas have power. All your while you're popping um, off camera. I'm, one thing I find really interesting about this, and we will tie it back into Zionism in just a second, um, is when you learn um, Jewish history and Jewish philosophy, especially, it's fascinating to me how some of these big ideas about like the power of individuals, the relationship of individuals to their communities and their social structures, these things are mirrored in Jewish philosophy in such fascinating ways, right? Like the rise of Hasidus and the rise of democracy. Like I, I find this stuff very, very interesting how clearly there's some bigger kind of like thought bubble process going on, like in yeah. general, that obviously trickles down into different places in very different ways. But like, it's not a coincidence that we have like Hasidus on one side and then like 
democracy on the other and like revolutions against monarchies on the other. It's just it's interesting. Really fascinating. It's, not, it's fascinating. It's not a connection I made until much, much later in life, even having learned about both of those things, just because I never lined up the timelines and thought, mm -hmm. huh, what are the connections between these ideas? Yeah, it's very cool to anyway, see the mirrors br bring and us, to look at it all in the context this, of everything. How does this get us how does this get us to Zionism in the uh, in the 18th? Right. So this is these ideas have a lot of power and they're very influential. And they inspired two revolutions, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. We have the emergence of the modern state, where there is a state that owes rights to the people, and the people who have rights in this new body politic are called citizens. 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 citizens right? <laughs> That's what it means to have citizenship. So right. who is a so citizen? People, the word citizen oh, is not to not subjects. Really, like, is it citizens used? versus subjects? Yes. Right. Okay. If you're okay. a subject, you just have to listen to whatever the king says. Yeah. But if you're a citizen, then you have rights. And so what does it mean to be a citizen and who gets to be a citizen? Who has rights? This is the big question of the 19th century all through the 1800s. This is like the driving question. There are also other driving questions, but in the political realm and the civil realm, this is the driving question. So. Napoleon comes to power. He thunders through Europe. He conquers lots of countries. And as he goes, he, you know, he, he, he opens the, the gates of the ghettos and the Jews are welcome to leave the ghettos and they are emancipated. In an American context, right, we think of emancipation of President Lincoln freeing the slaves from slavery. So this is a word right? Emancipation is a word of the time. It's being used in the context of Jews being freed from these like fetters that held them back. And then also the slaves being freed from these fetters that hold them back. Obviously, they're not completely analogous, but conceptually, you can see how this is just part of the And at this point, at this point, are Jews now considered full citizens in, in like a in contrast to the, the Muslim world that we talked about a few weeks ago, at this point, Jews are considered like full equal citizens in the Christian European context. It's very complicated. Okay. It's very, very complicated. In fact, uh, I recommend a book called Jewish Emancipation by David Sorkin. Just came out in 2019. I bought it late one night during COVID. I was like, this looks cool. I couldn't sleep. Um, and it's great. I find myself referencing it's it a weird, lot. It's weird because I made I just very say, different late night purchases during COVID. Say, I'm like, I buy boots and sweaters. And <laughs> history books. I bought a lot of other things. There was Project. an academic Never press. Heard. I forget which one. Whichever one published this book had a sale. And I was like literally in bed. It was midnight and I couldn't sleep. And I was like... Ooh, a book sale and I bought like five books <laughs> couldn't be me <laughs> my uh, late night pandemic purchases looked quite different than that but I respect you and your dedication to academic presses <laughs> so it, it becomes very complicated because Jews have to prove that they are worthy of citizenship and they are worthy of emancipation and also when Napoleon ultimately fails right and he's exiled to this island there is kind of like now a vacuum where what happens to these Jews who were emancipated and now they're out of the ghettos? Do they get to maintain their emancipation or will they lose their emancipated status and go back to the ghettos and lose whatever fragile rights they had attained during Napoleon's reign?
wait, is this when we're going to talk about Dreyfus? I'm, I'm like pulling old things out of my brain. I think the concept of the modern nation state is one of those ideas that like, it's so pervasive now. It's kind of like how now that we have phone, cell phones, it's hard to imagine how anyone ever contacted anyone ever before, right? Like, how did you ever pick up anyone from the airport? Mm -hmm. It's so ingrained in our day-to-day -day that, like, I don't understand how we ever function. Nation states are so, like, such an obvious, like, of course, there are countries and they each have a border and everyone inside is a citizen. Like, th that idea seems so basic to us now. It's very, very hard to wrap your mind around how new it is and how, for most of history, it was a lot more fuzzy. Like, you have these, like, empires. They tend to be a lot less defined right people spoke multiple languages but italy was not united until much later italy right and like not united right and that actually brings me to my next point yeah we're gonna get we're gonna get to dreyfus in like a little bit so like really really good connecting the dots Our gold great. star for Javorlea. <laughs> <laughs> so italy doesn't get united until 1861 and this is the time of nationalism with the emergence of this idea of the modern state is this idea of well who gets a state any and so we have the emerge we have the development of this idea of nationalism where a group of people who have a sense of like national consciousness they feel connected to each other on like this national level want to have their own form of government they can determine how their lives should be together and, and form their own national destiny. And so this is na uh, so national self-determination or nationalism. And we see this beginning to emerge also in, in the 19th century. And it's pretty early on in the 19th century too. You have Greek nationalism where the Greeks fought for independence from the Ottoman Empire. Um, and they they gain a Greek state in 1820. And then the you Greeks were the Maccabees. <laughs> Uno uh, reversed. Did you just say Uno reversed? <laughs> and then you have people in Italy fighting for unification. I asked, shout out to our friend Etty, who speaks Italian. You pronounce his name Giuseppe Garibaldi. Giuseppe Garibaldi. So he fought for, you know, an Italian republic that's united between all the various little states and duchies and whatever. This is an idea of the time. It's in the zeitgeist of the time. It is what everybody is talking about. And for Jews who accept the premise of modernity, and there are lots of Jews who do not, and they're kind of like beyond the scope of the conversation here. But for Jews who do accept this premise of, of modernity and all that it means to, to be modern, um, and to accept citizenship and to prove, right, because after Napoleon, they need to prove that they're worthy of citizenship. There are two paths. And the initial path is we want to prove that we are worthy of citizenship in our own countries. And, and this really comes up in France and in Germany and Western European countries. They go through a lot of lengths to prove that they are modern and they and they and many of them feel like we need to modernize Judaism because Judaism is this ossified, fossilized, you know, static, old fashioned religion that we need to leave behind. And if we want to enter the modern age, we need to modernize Judaism along with us. And that's where you get examples, let's say, of like German Jews who want to reform Judaism and do things like take out mention to the Beit HaMikdash and rename their places of worship temple instead of synagogue, right? And they try to make their their temples look more like 
churches. So are people at this time, Jews at this time, are they like fully integrating, assimilating into their cultures of their of their countries in such a way as to not be seen as Jews any, at all? Or is that like not even an option? Because I feel like in some places, maybe more in Eastern Europe and other places, Jews were always marked as different. So maybe there were a few exceptions, but for the most part, you couldn't really escape the label of Jew. You could only maybe redefine what that meant or something like that. So this is the first time you could do that, right? Before you were not able to escape the label of Jew. This is the first time that Jews can contemplate the idea of having an individual choice that is not determined by them because of their community of origin. And that's, I think, what it really means to be modern is to have choice. Things are not predetermined for you because this is the way of the community and the tradition. You can continue to be traditional, but you can also make individual choices. Modernity is all about individualism. And and I don't want to belabor the point that this is like some huge break with the past because actually historians argue the extent to which modernity actually is a big break from tradition. And that's a whole separate discussion. And you can take a whole graduate school seminar on that. But there is this new idea of individuality and individual choice and individual rights. And so Jews need to prove that they are not Jews. They can participate in modern society. And they do to different extents. And in Germany, this is particularly fraught because Germany was not yet united and there are different states. And so as many states as there are, there are different rules that govern Jewish life and In some places, Jews can go to university. In some places, they cannot. In some places, they can become and practice law. And in some places, they they cannot. It's it's a very fraught time. And but this is the idea of the time. Jews want to integrate, and Jews want to be part of society. Until this very fateful case of 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 Alfred Dreyfus, who was a Jewish French military officer who gets charged with sabotage or espionage or treason and he's called on to trial and this is very obviously an unfair charge backed by anti-semitism and the story in france is very complicated between the republics and the monarchists and the catholics and all of that so there's a lot of context that i'm skipping over but there is a young jewish journalist theodore herzl who's covering the dreyfus affair and he looks at all this and he says this is not working integration is not working. This idea that Jews will somehow escape the problem of anti-Semitism that we have experienced for centuries in Europe by becoming citizens in this new political order is not going to work. And so he says, well, if the new idea of the day is statehood and citizenship, and it's not going to work for Jews to have citizenship in Europe, we need our own state where we can be citizens of our own state. And so the Dreyfus Affair is in 1894 to 1906. It's a trial that really takes a few years and really captures the imagination and attention of people in Europe and beyond. But from that point on, now for modern Jews, there are these competing ideas of what is the place of the Jew in modern society? Is it, in, and I'm talking about political realm, I'm not talking about culture or religion or whatever, spe- specifically in the political context. Is it as citizens of our of home countries where we live, or is it as citizens of a Jewish state? 
And so when Herzl comes up with this, he's coming up with this idea of national self-determination for the Jewish people in the context of a century where everybody else is also talking about national self-determination. If it's the Italians or the Greeks or the Germans or anybody else, everybody is talking about national self-determination. And Herzl says, what about national self-determination for the Jews? What's blowing my mind about this, and I don't think I've heard it framed, like the way I learned this history was very much framed just in this defensive posture against anti-Semitism rather than this idealistic, like nationalistic determination that you're talking about now. What's fascinating to me is that this one of the debates, the kind of continuous debates that we've been having about Israel versus the world is like there's this pretty, you know, there's this quote that had been going around, no one gets a theocratic ethnostate, right? Like, is it okay for an ethnic group to demand their own ethnic ethnostate, right? To demand their own place. And a lot of more progressive-minded left, I don't want to use the word left even, but like really progressive-minded people are like, the ideal is that every country in the world be multicultural and diverse and accepting and tolerant and allow everyone to be safe within its borders. And in a world like that, Jews don't need an ethnostate. We don't need a safe place or a national, our own national place. We are safe and comfortable and, and can thrive in all the safe, multicultural, progressive nations of the world, right? And all we need to do is make sure all the countries are like that and make sure they stay like that forever and we'll be just fine, right? And I feel like this continuous debate that we've been having where it's like, this has been tried, right? Like this goes, and now you're saying this goes all the way back even to the 1800s where there was a moment when Jews felt like they could integrate and they could be both Jewish and French, Jewish and German, Jewish and Italian. And then it crumbled a little bit and there was like, there were problems and they got worse and worse, obviously over the 20th century. But this idea that that was the ideal and then yet we don't really believe that the ideal can be maintained like, it's not the first time that football has been put out in front of us and we've been asked to kick it, right? And I think the skepticism that many of our ancestors have towards that ideal to say America seems like the golden in Medina right now, but we don't know that it will stay like this forever. And it's not likely to stay like this forever because golden and Medinas have come and gone before, right? The good times have come and gone before and that having our own you know, national safe place, a national home is not unreasonable for us to want. It's just fascinating to me that it, it literally goes back literally to the founding of Zionism is exactly this question of like, can we integrate safely and remain so? Or do or, or are things always going to take a turn and we're going to need another option? It's really interesting. My mom, she used to tell this story about when she was in Hebrew school. They talked to her about, they talked, I guess, to all the kids. They were saying, are you an American Jew or a Jewish American? And she was like, I'm a Jewish American. And they were like, no, <laughs> you're an American Jew. And she said that it was like, try, they, they tried to drill into these kids in Hebrew school in Manhattan in the 1960s that you're a Jew above all, and then you're American. Yeah, this is like the big question. And in the first half of the 20th century, you know, you really had these competing visions of where should we be? A personal story, my family, very many members of my family, were products of the Allianz Israelite Universelle, which was an educational system uh, and a movement started by French Jews in the aftermath of the Damascus blood libel and the Mortara affair to 
build modern schools throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And the idea was to help Jews, right, this French ideal of citizenship and emancipation, uh, to help Jews throughout the Middle East and North Africa to be integrated in their own societies and to be citizens of their own societies. And so they had this modern education where they learned traditional Jewish studies like Torah, and they also learned all the things that we now think of modern education, science, geography, French, Arabic, Turkish, Persian, you know, the the, the country of wherever they're from. And it's also the, the education is sometimes gendered where women will learn sewing and, you know, to be expected. And the Alliance actually was opposed to Zionism because they have competing visions. If you have a Zionist agent come and want to start, a, you know, a Zionist group in your community to say, oh, everyone should move to the land of Israel and create a new vibrant Jewish society in our historic homeland. And in the meantime, the Alliance teachers are trying to say, well, you live, you live in Morocco, your place is in Morocco, you can be a productive Jew in Morocco. These are competing visions. And they had different ideas about what's the place of the Jew. And my, my family, um, especially my mom's side in Hamadan, they were all products of Alliance, starting from my great-grandfather, who was a student and later became a teacher in Alliance. My grandparents were students of Alliance. Now, by the time my grandfather was a principal of Alliance schools in several Iranian cities, this is in the 50s. So this is after the war. And his story for me was, um, he told me this story last winter. We were on vacation in Florida, sitting at the pool, like casually chilling. And he comes out with this story. It was kind of crazy. He was young. He was in his 20s. And he was a principal of this school in Yazd. Yazd so was a small, smaller city, smaller Jewish community. And when he arrived there, he could not find a place to rent a home. My my grandfather has an Arabic first name and a Persian last name. He does not have a Jewish, I mean, he has a Hebrew name for Jewish reasons, but he doesn't use his Hebrew name. And he couldn't find anybody to rent to him because it's a small city and everyone knew he's the director of the Jewish school. In the end, he rented from a Baha'i household. And as principal of the, of the Alliance School in Yaz, my grandfather worked, he's an Alliance official, and he worked with the Sakhnut, with the Jewish agency to facilitate the Aliyah of Jews of Yazd. And he, every time a caravan of Jews left Yazd, my grandfather lost like 30, 30 students. Eventually, my grandfather left Yazd, he was principal in other places, ended up in Teher Tehran, Bef during the revolution, a little bit before he left Iran, he went back to Yazd and there were about 17 people left and they were all planning in the school and they were all planning to make Aliyah to Israel. And what my grandfather told me was before the war, before World War II, Alliance's mission was integration and emancipation. And after the war, we realized that this was a lie and Zionism is the truth direct quote verbatim from my grandfather. And so Allianz had completely changed its view after the Holocaust. And I think a lot of Jews changed their view after the Holocaust wow. because it yeah. became very clear that integration was a failure in Europe. The, the ideal of integration and emancipation was burned in crematoria. Right? This did not work in Europe. 
And it did not work in the Middle East or North Africa either. There were vibrant ancient Jewish communities, very diverse, different types of Jews throughout all these countries. Um, and and the story of emancipation is is very different. It's not the same as Western Europe, and it's a different conversation for maybe another podcast episode. Um, but they are all gone, right? There are no Jews left in these yeah. countries for the most part. Maybe and, some and- in Morocco, some in Iran. But that's it. There are nobody left in Egypt, nobody left in Libya, no one left in Tunisia, nobody left in Lebanon, no one left in Syria, nobody left in Iraq, no one left in Afghanistan. There is nobody left. So this idea And and the same is true. The same is true in Poland and Hungary. I mean, it's not zero, but it's, you know, compared to the numbers that were in Poland and Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria and you know, Russia still has, but Germany, I mean, the same is true in Eastern Europe, right? Like it's not there's just swaths of the globe if you spin it around, right? Where the Jews, li- you know, once lived. This idea, this ideal that you're talking about integration, it's exactly what many American anti-Israel Jews today are asking us to accept as a just the, a, a, a possibility and something that we need to that we should feel safe staking our entire survival on, right? I saw another another uh, anti-Zionist Jew talking and saying like, "Well, which one is it?" Am I privileged become because I'm an American and I'm so safe, and that's why I can't you know criticize criticize Israel because who am I to speak as a safe American? Or are Jews only safe in Israel? How can you have it both ways? And that question annoyed me because the answer is both. Currently, you are safe in America, and currently you don't experience real danger. But we are not crazy for looking to the future and saying there could come a time, like the, the communities that you're speaking of, going back a thousand years in some of these countries you know, didn't think they would crumble and then they did. America's only has, what, 200-ish years of Jewish settlement, rocky at times, great at other times. It's not crazy to say we cannot stake our entire survival on countries like the ones who accepted us before, continuing to accept us forever and ever, and then that's our only way of surviving as a nation. And right now, right now, since October 7th, we are seeing exponentially more anti-Semitism in America than any of us have in our lifetimes. And we're being told we need to not think about ever needing to go somewhere else to feel safe because America's safe. But then I'm watching the presidents of Ivy League schools are saying that calling for Jewish genocide is only a problem, well, depends on the context. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. That doesn't make me feel safe. I. It's so ironic to me that all of this is happening all at once because I've never felt less safe to be a Jew in America and at the same time, we're being told that Jews don't need to have a country. Right. The The other, like, really ironic part of all of this is the way that people argue against Jewish national liberation in the name of another national liberation movement. How can you argue for Palestinian national aspirations and deny Jewish national aspirations? 
That makes no sense to me. Now, if you're opposed to this idea, if if you say, well, national self-determination is an argument of the 20th century, fine. Maybe I'll agree with you. Maybe I'll disagree with you. But at least you're ideologically and intellectually consistent and honest. But oftentimes the people making this argument are making it in the name of Palestinian national aspirations. So that just makes no sense to me. I mean, I think personally, I am a Zionist because I think that in a modern world where everything is predicated on statehood and citizenship, we need to have a Jewish state where Jews have citizenship and are safe. For me, it's as simple as that. I think it's it's also not solely about having a place of refuge, but a place where we can build a national home and be together and and build and build something for our children and our grandchildren and all of that. And for me, that same call for national self-determination for the Jewish people, I think obligates me to also support that for the Palestinians. And I didn't grow up with this, right? If I if someone had told me in like 1999 that they supported <laughs> a Palestinian state, I think everyone around me would have been really shocked. Right. That just was not the milieu in which I grew up. And it took many years of really thinking about this to understand that if I wanted to be consistent in my values, then that's what that requires. You know, and 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 I think maybe we should talk about this another time because I don't want to get lost in the weeds. No, but Just- I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because this idea of nationalism being this like, you know, this this force that's carrying all these, you know, countries to create their their own um entities and then Israel along with it, you're right that it inevitably brings you to the conclusion if you want to be consistent person that believes in you know human rights and equality you do realize okay palestinian people you know it's it's genuinely a very very difficult conundrum that they that their land the piece of land that they genuinely belong to right and i don't want to deny that is the same piece of land like it's just the reality that you know history is long and we were there and they were there and we all want the same piece I think in the name of trying to find an easy answer, people will just reject one of those. And I've know I know people personally who reject both of those, one or the other. And I can't do either. I think that both have a legitimate claim that doesn't give me an easy answer, but it also doesn't deny the humanity of either side. So it's worth kind of thinking about, well, how how did this all happen? Before World War One, all through the 19th century. The ruling order of the of the time were different types of uh, different empires, land-based empires. Some of them are colonial empires as well, like the British Empire, but traditional land-based empires. In many of these collapsed during World War One. The Hohenzollerns in Germany, the Romanovs in Russia, the Habsburgs, and the crucially the Ottoman Empire. And so out of that emerges this idea that now all these places that had been ruled by empires can now build their own states for their own nations. And this is the central point of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, where he says, now that we're rebuilding a new world order after World War I, national aspirations needs to be like a central aspect of this. And so everybody, not everybody, 
But we see the creation of many, many new nation states and a mandate system that's meant to shepherd many of these states to self-determination. But for example, modern day Iraq is comprised of three former Ottoman provinces. So this is all carved out of the former Ottoman Empire. So what we think of Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Jordan, these are all modern states that had never existed before. They are all former Ottoman Empire, Ottoman provinces, and they become states for the first time. This is a brand new idea. And Israel, too, is a new state with a new, you know, it's a product of a, of a movement of national self-determination, just like all these other states. And it is also created within this mandate system that comes to be after World War I, after you know, the Ottoman Empire completely falls apart. To, to say that Israel is legitimate or illegitimate is to call into question the legitimacy and the foundation of all these states that come to be in the aftermath of the Ottoman Empire, right? That's, they're all created at the same time. The only people who don't end up with the state and the questions of that are very complicated and how and why that comes to be and what are the forces at play here are the Palestinians that do not have a state, but everybody else does. And that is the problem of the second half of the 20th century for Israel. And a lot of this is because of the way that the colonial powers drew these maps, right? So this isn't like Israel's fault. This is European powers who sat together and drew these national borders to fit the, to to fit their own needs, and some people got a state and and some didn't. So it's all really England's fault, right? I'm very happy to blame. Yeah, basically. basically. I mean, it's fascinating to me that we still use the term Zionism at all, right? Because Zionism <laughs> was a historical movement. It was the movement that was about creating a Jewish national homeland, right? Zionism is in some sense over, right? The project to create a, 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 a state happened. It's done. The state <laughs> is here. It's fascinating to me that we still use the word Zionism, which almost sounds like we're still in that process of building instead of like that being a thing that happened 75 years ago and is very much over. Um, and I've seen people argue that using that, Zion, that term Zionism is almost a way to position Israel as a project whose fulfillment is not yet completely achieved, right? It would be like someone wrote here, it would be like calling the American America the revolutionary colonies, right? That were acting like the American Revolution, like, eh, they kind of won, but like, who knows what will happen, right? Instead of seeing America, a friend of ours, Ephraim Sherman, I'll call him out because um, he has great things to say on a lot of topics. He was talking about how as a progressive liberal he has no problem criticizing America in, in a hundred different ways, right? And it's easy to criticize America. And the reason that is because when you criticize America, no one thinks you're saying you're calling for the dissolution of America. No one thinks you're calling for America to fall apart. No matter what side of the aisle you want, you're on, no matter what your position, even terrorists who attack America, nobody sees America is as going anywhere. No one thinks America is falling apart. So we can all kind of hack at it from, with our pickaxes on whatever side of the issue we are. We don't really see the whole thing crumbling and falling into the sea, right? But a lot of people still see Israel that way. And unfortunately, I think we we have seen that there are many Palestinians today, and I think, honestly, to their detriment, honestly, they truly believe that Israel will 
fall in their lifetime and will no longer exist. And I personally believe that that pushes people in in a place that I don't think is ultimately beneficial to them. And I think it is a way of, he, he wrote it, he, he said it so well that I can't say it better. He said, it, using the word Zionist like this, as if Israel has not yet achieved its goal of existing, it allows people to question whether Israel should be maintained. It attempts to keep Israel tentative, approved for the first season, but not yet renewed for the second. I thought it was just like a great way of frame, <laughs> framing it. And that's why it's so hard to criticize Israel, even as a progressive, because you sound like you might be one of those people who wants to see Israel crumble into the sea and who thinks that that's an imminent possibility. And I can say as someone who has lots to criticize about Israel, just as just like I've lots to criticize about America, that's not happening. It will not happen. Israel will not go anywhere. It is a country like any other country does good things, does bad things. There's what to criticize. But this idea that it's it's still in this phase of Zionism, it just doesn't seem fair to me. I think that that's probably why a lot of Israelis don't have a problem criticizing the Israeli government, because they're really sure that they're there and they're there to stay. Anyway. I mean, that's also what it means to be Jewish. It's like you yeah. open a Talmud, the first Masakta, the first Sugya, and it's like, what time do we say Shema? And it's like, well, we might say Shema this time or this time or this time. And everyone is arguing and like. That's your first foray into this, right? This is like Jews argue about stuff. Jews, Jews argue. argue about stuff all And the now time. that it's Hanukkah, we can argue about the meaning of Hanukkah. And I definitely think that, you know, the, the meaning of Hanukkah I was raised on was very specific, very aligned with Chabad philosophy and Chabad values, especially of its time. And it was all about fighting assimilation. And that's one totally valid meaning. The meaning of Bringing Hanukkah light could be into about the dark. Light yes. into the dark. And the other meaning of Hanukkah could be about Jewish self-determination and nationalism. And I think it's so interesting that some of these ideas that you're talking about are almost mirrored in the Hanukkah story in this like proto-nationalism kind of way. Um, I I would hesitate to go so far as to say that the meaning of Hanukkah is about Palestinian liberation against the oppressive Jewish state. I don't know that I would take it that far, but I do I do love the fact that we can sit here and argue about it and we can all have a different perspective and then we still eat the same latkes because that's the one thing we can all agree on is that latkes are absolutely delicious. Latkes are definitely delicious. And I think that we can all agree that Hanukkah is about miracles. And I think right now we're all praying for miracles. So with that, we hope this episode will drop right around the first night of Hanukkah. Enjoy. Have a happy, have a happy, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> a Sameach. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your latkes and your sifkaniot. Your and your your oh, donuts. Sfinge, the best. If you have what? not had sfinge, go get one. It's the Moroccan sifkania. Oh, oh. die for. Go All right, find one. Find it's one. Fried for your churros. Food. Oh, try fried food. Your churros. <laughs> your French fries. Your anything you can think of to pour oil all over and your cheese and your wine and uh, celebrate, celebrate together and we should see miracles. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to ask us a question or tell us what you thought, you can find us on Instagram at voice.notes.podcast. This was produced by us, edited by me, and thank you to Nahadar for our intro and outro music. Happy Hanukkah.